You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, we've got something of a special episode this week where Leo and I are going to be breaking down some of the results from newly released data from the British Election Study. Leo, thank you for joining me. Hello, Kieran. So this um, survey will probably need me um, need no introduction uh, to most listeners um, to the podcast. But for those of you that don't know, just to give you a brief overview of what we're talking about. So the British... British election study has two main components. One component is a sort of a series of large-scale online surveys conducted by YouGov, approximately 30,000 interviews a wave, and the most recent ones of those took place um, in April and May before the general election last year, and then in June and July sort of afterwards. Um, there were three separate waves, like I say, approximately 30,000 interviews a wave, very, very large scale. And the idea there was to get as large sample size as possible, but also to try and retain panellists through each wave to make sure that you could look at individuals and how they were shifting in their attitudes and their behaviours, rather than sort of trying to infer that from um, smaller polls. Now, a lot of that data was released last autumn and uh, has been digested already. But what happened this week is we saw the um, the face-to-face component of the British election study, which is run by my company, um, GFK, or at least the fieldwork is, and then the numbers are crunched by a, a team of, of academics. And that data has been released this week and has caused something of a stir, Leo, because it suggests that the so-called youth quake um, never happened. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? Right. So I imagine listeners will generally have seen about it. So I'm going to be quite brief. But essentially, the idea is uh, around the election, there was a widely held view that turnout amongst young people had gone up. And there are a couple of reasons for, for that view. But among them were that Labour had been trying to do that. That had been uh, very much the uh, leadership strategy. And after the election, some polls did seem to back up the the idea that uh, turnout amongst the youngest groups of voters uh, had increased. But a paper that uh, has come out this week and got quite a bit of attention has argued that that doesn't look to have been the case. So amongst 18 to 24s, so the very youngest age group, it suggested there hasn't been any such increase in turnout. If anything, it's slightly down. It's worth saying, though, that what it did show was that turnout was up amongst uh, the slightly older, but still younger than the median age group. So people in their uh, mid to late 20s, and particularly in their 30s, did, according to uh, the BES data that's, uh, that's analysed in this paper, go up quite considerably. So not amongst the youngest age groups, which I think is is perhaps where the, where the sort of uh, strongest enthusiasm and the kind of um, uh, uh, ideal of the youth quake was, was focused. But the, the basic principle that younger voters, um, people below their mid-40s, were turning up in larger numbers at the last election, I think does still stand. Now, we're going to get into some of the methodological um, considerations here and some of the, the criticisms um, that have been levelled at this claim. Um, but before we do, let's talk a bit about why, why this matters. Um, you mentioned that there's obviously a huge narrative around young people um, sort of surging to the polls in support of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, we all know of the song, the Seven Nation Army, you know, oh, Jeremy Corbyn and all that. That's the first time you've heard me sing that, Leo. Um, but... Yeah, why does this matter if it turns out that they didn't actually turn out in those numbers? Well, I mean, one of the issues is we rely on, uh, let's call them normal polls. So 
um, poles that aren't carried out to the in the sort of levels of gold standard robustness that the BES is carried out to. We rely on them a lot for understanding what's going on with public opinion. And if it wasn't for this study, then we probably would still be thinking that youth turnout has increased. Um, and I mean, one of the things that's going on there is that uh, polls are typically weighted to the adult population, not the eligible voting population, but the adult population. And and those two, it sort of it feels like it, it shouldn't be that different, but it is quite importantly different uh, because the uh, eligible population obviously includes people who aren't eligible, who are typically, sorry, the adult population includes people who aren't typically uh, eligible, who are typically uh, younger, immigrants um, and uh, often better educated than the eligible population. So uh, many polls, most polls are, uh, are weighted to a sample that isn't quite representative. And uh, I think that's one of the things that the BES has reminded us. And, and of course, uh, you'll remember Kieran earlier, uh, earlier in the month, there was another study that, that did something similar that essentially showed that turnout at general elections may have been quite a bit higher than, yes. um, than we've generally been thinking. And that, um, we've often been thinking about a slightly different sample. Um, and I guess just sort of you know, the value of this, I mean, aside from telling you something specific about this election, is just reminding us to be cautious about the data that comes from um, normal polls that... Um, we, we need to sort of be aware that there are limitations to them. Yeah, and I think that this, this goes to the heart of why we set this podcast up all those years ago. It, it's, um, you know, A, we're, in, we're a bit nerdy, let's, let's, let's confess. But, but B, I think that, you know, the reason behind the title, Polling Matters, without getting too deep, is, is, is that the way we understand politics and society is shaped by the data that's out there in the public domain. And if that data turns out to be wrong or painting a misleading picture, then the whole narrative around politics um, completely shifts. But so that's kind of w what we're trying to get at. I suppose all data is imperfect. So it's probably worth me focusing a couple of minutes on, on how this face-to-face -face survey was done, because I guess people are probably um, a bit a bit sceptical when um, the conventional wisdom is, is, is challenged. So the difference between this survey and the other typical opinion polls that you might find is that it was done face to face um, over a long period of time, and it was and it was a random sort of probability um, survey. Um, it was a, a survey of two thousand one hundred ninety four people um, conducted in um, four hundred sixty eight wards in two hundred thirty four parliamentary constituencies. Um, there's a 46% response rate, but I think the key thing that people might not realise is that this survey that says there's no youth quake was done between um, June the 26th, 2017, so just after the election, and October the 1st, 2017. That's a long time. That's over a number of months. And the reason for that, the primary reason um, for that, is because um, it is a random probability survey, and therefore interviewers are going back to the same people over and over again. So if you knock on someone's door and they don't answer, you go back and you go back and you go back again to try and make sure you get them. And that's for a very, very good reason, which is that um, typically the people that join online panels or take part in surveys of any kind um, are not normal people. Sorry, guys. Um, they, they are often quite engaged in the world, in this case, politics. And, and there's a risk that you're missing out on um, people that are less engaged but are still going to vote, but also that you're missing out on non-voters as well. So this is all about getting a genuinely representative sample um, of the population. So this survey is very, very different 
to the types of surveys um, that we're normally used to talking about on this podcast. At the same time, the eagle-eared of you, if that's a thing, will notice that I talked about um, 2,194 responses. Now, the important point there is, that, and we'll come to this, I think, in a moment, is that that is still a survey of just over 2,000 people and is still subject to margin of error, even though um, we would argue that um, this is better quality data, maybe. Um, it's still subject to margin of error. I should actually, as an aside, say, although I work at GFK, I was not part of this survey, so please, listeners, don't consider me a spokesperson for it. Um, there's a second component uh, to this survey, which is important as well, called vote validation, where people that gave permission basically uh, were marked, checked against the, what's called the marked electoral register. Um, basically, um, the, the uh, researchers were able to tell whether people had legitimately voted. And again, this is another reason why people would see this as the gold standard of research. People lie about whether they vote. It's quite hard to get non-voters, um, an accurate reflection of the voting public and so on. We know that the people that, or at least a large proportion of the people that said they voted in this survey did because we could literally prove it by looking at the, the March register. So there's all these different um, considerations that go into this survey and why the, the, the data quality is perceived to be better than others. At the same time, it is still data and it's still subject to the usual sort of margin of error um, aspects. So I guess, Leo, that would bring us on to a critique of the poll uh, from Peter Kellner, formerly of YouGov. Who has um, who has sort of queried whether um, the debunking of the youth quake is quite so um, clear as it might be uh, presented? Right. So Kelder's written in Prospect magazine that essentially the margin of error of the eighteen to twenty-four year olds in this just over two thousand person survey is large, and in fact, it's so large that uh, comparing the two waves. Um, you could easily, within the margin of error bands, have a youth quake. So you could have uh, something like a 15-point increase in turnout between 2015 and 2017, according to the BS data, and still be within the margin of error. Now, as far as I can see, there's absolutely no, uh, nothing wrong with what he's saying. Um, I mean, it's, it's important to bear in mind that margin of error is what you get with a perfectly conducted poll. So when we have these margin of error uh, stats, they are assuming that the, the population was sampled completely randomly, it was completely well done. So it, 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 it's not as a criticism of the poll. In fact, it's assuming that the poll is very, very good. So um, there's, sort of, there's no defense that you can make of saying, well, the BES data was gold standard, it was done perfectly. Uh, no, the margin of error applies exactly to that. So, I mean, I think that, that Kellner is academically completely right on this, and it is certainly possible that the BES data could still uh, be capturing, or there could be a youth quake, despite what, what it says sort of at the centre of the, the error bands. Mm. Um, but I think, I think sort of what you have to remember is the burden of proof on the idea that there is a, a youth quake the burden of proof rests on the people who say that it is there. I think we have to assume that nothing has changed unless someone can show that, that something has changed. So it's all very well him saying, well, it's still possible it's there. This hasn't completely disproved it. But you could make exactly the same, but the opposite argument of the other polls that, that claim to have found it. So you could equally say, well, yeah. you know, there's, there's, no, there's no youth quake within the margin of error. And they're the ones that are saying that there's been a big change. So... I sort of feel it's it's true, but 
I'm not I'm not sure that I would therefore draw the conclusion that we just don't know either way. I think the trouble with, with, with this debate is that this is the newest information we have, um, this, this uh, face-to-face uh, survey for the British election study um, that's challenging the notion of young people surging to the polls. Um, there's been all this other information that over time has sort of reaffirmed this, um, this conventional wisdom, if you like. So it, it's almost like people are more sceptical of this uh, face-to-face survey, maybe in some parts, because cause it's the new information. Um, so it, I, I don't know. It, it's... Um, just because it's one data point in isolation doesn't mean it's uh, doesn't mean it's wrong. Having said that, um, I think it was Chris Prosser, I think so, um, acknowledged or, or whoever it was, uh, the team that put together the paper on this. Um, one of their justifications, if you like, for why there might not have, why why the conventional wisdom was wrong was that they acknowledged that the areas with a higher proportion of young people or an increase in the proportion of younger people in the constituency did show greater turnout. But they also um, use, use the same data to show that constituencies with a greater rate of toddlers um, within the uh, constituency um, had a higher turnout as well. And that obviously wasn't to do with toddlers surging to the polls either. Right. So it's kind of the argument that um, you can't blame yeah. you, you can't say blame uh, uh, rain for people bringing umbrellas outside because it's what's correlation and what's causation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's what's known as the ecological fallacy, the, um, the idea that you can infer these things from, from the, um, the sort of the makeup of the wider environment. It's entirely possible that, um, in fact, quite probable that young people are concentrated in university towns. University towns have a higher proportion of well-educated people. Maybe it's well-educated people in their 30s and 40s who are turning out in greater numbers, not the students in the same places. Yeah, and I think that just to, to close on this topic before we move on to some other data that's interesting in this, um, in this survey... I think that if we take a step back and try and think, okay, what, is it, what, what does all this mean for our understanding of, of, of British politics? I think there's still a few things that, regardless of whether you think 18 to 24 surged to the polls or not, there are still a few things that we still are, are pretty confident about. One is that younger people did turn up in greater numbers than they used to. It just might be a debate about how young those people were. But the other, which is very clear from the um, BES panel data, is that... Um, younger people swang towards Labour as well, you know. Um, and I think that when we're looking at the, the the big picture, if you like, it's still clear that there is a huge age divide in the, that, that is a solid predictor of how you're likely to vote. It's almost as though age has supplanted social class, well, it has, um, as a predictor of how you'll vote, and, and the political divide in British politics. So I guess we can quibble, and it's fun to do that, over whether the very youngest, the students, um, turned up to vote. And also, I guess, whether or not they did might might um, sort of create a debate about whether the tuition fees policy was really anything significant in what happened, I guess. That's a completely separate debate. But at the same time, younger people are voting Labour. There is a generational divide over Brexit and over who to vote for. We shouldn't lose sight of that, should we? Mm. And in fact, we can layer on top of that uh, something of a gender divide as well that um, <clears throat> that fits in with that age divide. So uh, among women rather than among men, the uh, this age divide is uh, even steeper. So um, just just sort of this is this is somewhat from my looking at the BES data, but it seems to me that there's pretty much a straight line for women in their sort of propensity to vote Labour versus their propensity to vote Tories. So um, it looks to me that about 15, 1.5% of 18, 1.8-year-old women are voting Tory, 
And then there's pretty much just a straight line upwards in their likelihood all the way up to about the age of 70 when it starts leveling off, uh, 70 to 75. Um, and it's about 70% of, of um, people in their early 70s are, are voting Tory. So 15% of 18-year-olds up to uh, 70% of, of women in their, their early 70s. And that's just such a, a constant, uh, steep gradient that is still there with men, but slightly less so. Mm. I'm glad you brought up gender because that was one of the things we we're going to come on to next. Um, Jane Green, one of the uh, Professor Jane Green, sorry, um, one of the people that um, sort of works on the works on this analysis, leads on this analysis, had a really interesting blog about gender, didn't she? Which which essentially seemed to suggest that um, a lot of people focus on age, and understandably so, but actually. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a swing between um, from conservative to labour among women as much as anything that seemed to explain uh, the election result. So, to, if if we look at the, the the numbers there in more detail, we see that if you compare 2015 to 2017, um, more men voted conservative in 2017 than they did in 2015, which is largely, well, not entirely, but largely explained by UKIP voters and the collapse of UKIP and them tending to be more likely to be men moving back towards the conservatives but on the flip side whereas in 2015 um, women were more likely to vote conservative than men and more likely to vote conservative uh, than labor the the opposite was true in 2017 so a real surge um, of support for labor among women but i guess this uh, goes to the heart of um, what i was talking about earlier about the premise of polling matters the, the entire narrative about politics can shift depending on the prism through which you see it. So the whole election has almost been seen as a thing about Remainers and Leavers and about young versus old. But actually, there is a data point that to, to be had that shows that um, gender could, it could have been a, a real uh, driving factor in how people were voting at the uh, election too. And I, I think that if we're going to conclude anything, it's that there isn't really one determining factor. There's a whole host of things that are interlinked that are that are important. But I, I am just I am just fascinated by this idea that how we view politics in in um in, in, in society sort of is really um, determined by the prism through which we see it. I think I think that's um that's really important. But um Leo, there was a host of other numbers, wasn't there? Um, that uh, I think Matt Singh, who um might be joining us next week, um was putting out there. Was was there anything um in particular in what Matt was sharing on on, on BES that you thought was interesting? Yeah, I'm going to shamelessly uh, uh, make use of some of the analysis that he did. And I mean, actually, I think, you know, before, before we do, I mean, there's, there's a point that, that we were talking about that I think is sort of worth, worth mentioning on, on, on the show, which is, uh, I mean, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm finding it a bit frustrating that there's this wealth of fascinating, really good quality data. And it's exceptionally hard to access because unlike the, the polling data that we're used to, it's not presented in a user-friendly way. Essentially, you need to be familiar with statistical tools to be able to get to it, and sort of feel seems quite outdated and a little frustrating. Yeah, I'd echo, I'd echo that. Um, so basically, if you go, well, we can share a link to this afterwards for those that, that can that want to have a look, if you can. Um, but basically, when alongside the papers that the, the the team published, they just give you the SPSS data and the starter data. I mean, it's it's so if if you if you're proficient in analyzing data and data software packages, um, then you can go nuts and put together. All all the different variables and tables and things that you would need to do but I mean as you say Leo you kind of have to be a professional <laughs> professional researcher to do it and uh, I don't know why that is I don't know if that's just a habit that's been formed over time or if um, people want to sort of guard the um, ability to share this information but I don't know I think that there's other 
One thing that pol normal pollsters, for want of a better phrase, or the traditional pollsters are maybe better at is uh, getting their data out there by making it accessible. And I, I definitely would hope that they'd produce at least some sort of top line in the future. Because, I mean, just from a really basic perspective, if you're, if you're trying to convince journalists to, pu to publish things, maybe you want to give them uh, more accessible stuff. But, I mean, then don't get me wrong, the analysis that's been done has been phenomenal, has been fantastic. But it'd be great to see uh, maybe some kind of more traditional data tables published in the future. But who, who knows well, it's why? Good, it's good for scrutiny, right? You know, the, the reason that we have uh, a pretty good polling industry in this country is that um, compared with, say, Australia, where there's no expectation that people publish polls and so uh, any old uh, outfit can run a poll and say they got whatever result they say they do and journalists uh, just have to, to suck it up and go with it here you know it, it's much harder for uh, uh, anyone who wants to, to put some numbers out there to make stuff up because there's an expectation that the data will be public and sort of feel that this spirit of not publishing data is um, putting it backwards. But anyway, um, all of that was uh, my justification for shamelessly nicking Matt Singh's uh, analysis. <laughs> um, so, I mean, look, there's, there's loads of really interesting stuff, um, and I'll just pick up on, on a few of them. But uh, one of the ones that caught my eye very quickly was a um, question on uh, whether gender equality and a separate question on whether racial equality uh, have gone too far or have not gone far enough. And um, they have both moved a bit since 2015, but they've moved in in different ways. So racial equality, um, the population has become somewhat more liberal. Uh, so more people now think that racial equality has not gone far enough than thought the same in 2015. Uh, and actually, you know, a fairly, fairly significant shift. It's, um, you know, the, the move, the move is, is clearly visible. Whereas gender equality, uh, more people do also think that it hasn't gone far enough, but at the same time, more people think that it's gone too far. So essentially, it's uh, uh, gender equality has become more polarized, whereas racial equality has become more liberal. Now, uh, something I just double checked and is indeed the case is that this was taken before the Harvey Weinstein allegations came out. So this isn't a case of, of it being a backlash to the Me Too movement. Uh, so it's quite striking that even before then, uh, there seemed to be a bit more polarisation in gender, uh, in views on gender equality. Yeah, and And then another question that I thought was interesting um, and sort of you know a similar theme of, of sort of liberalism was uh, a question on whether the UK has too many immigrants. And it's still the case that um, by getting on for two to one. People think that there are too many immigrants in the UK. 62% say yes, 32% say no. Um, but something that's striking there is that there's been uh, a 10-point 10, a 10 shift um, on both of those numbers towards uh, no. So yes has fallen 10 points, no has increased 10 points. So still um, very much a 30-point lead um, for uh, people thinking that there are too many immigrants. But that's down from a 50-point lead. Uh, only two years earlier, which is quite striking. I've got to say, as a slight aside here, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of that question wording. I suppose there's no, it's not awful, but I mean, I know that some people have have, have got stuck into the question wording on some of these questions. And there was one around um, electoral reform as well. I think people didn't like, maybe we'll come to that. But, um, you know, too, too many immigrants. Um, 
it, it doesn't feel very balanced as a kind of um, way of, of getting the nuanced view. I, um, I mean, maybe it's not supposed to be. Maybe it's just about just getting that real blunt, um, definitive point and seeing how many people agree with it. But, you know, if, if you're going to write that question, I'm not sure I'd write it in that way. Um, you know, it, it's kind of very blunt, yes, no. And I, I think that, that the positive is that, yeah, yes, that, yes, there's too many. And the negative is, no, there's not too many. I mean, you, you, should have a, you could have a scale there if you're going to have, um, you know, on a five-point scale maybe. Or maybe you could have something more polar. Um, what do we what do we used to call those? Um, what do we polar- polarity? Polarity. That's the one where it's kind of you give two conflicting views and you ask people where they sit between statement A and statement B. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's felt like um, there's something almost implicit in the question that 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 too many immigrants is a bad thing or something. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't a fan of it anyway. But maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe the trend's more important than what it, what the question wording actually was. Well, I think I think they're both important. I think you raise a good question, a good point on it. I mean, just to be absolutely clear, the precise wording of the question is: Do you think that too many immigrants have been let into this country or not? Yeah, and I think there's a lot. I mean, I'm not going to go through them all now, but I think there's a, there's a lots of different ways you can a- ask that. Um, and it just feels like I'm not sure I'd go as far to say it's leading, um, but it's a bit like, do you think this thing has happened, or maybe not? It, um, it, I'm not so sure. And I think that mm. there's something about let into that I think is quite loaded language. Mm-hmm. Anyway, another question that caught my eye was on Brexit, and it was a question on the uh, prospect of having another referendum. Um, I'll read out the wording because I think it's important. After Brexit negotiations are finished, would you be in favour of having a referendum on whether to accept the deal or remain in the EU? So deal or uh, no Brexit. And that had 47% yes for another referendum, 39% no. Uh, So an eight-point lead for yes. And I think that's striking and quite important for two reasons. Firstly, um, this the, the uh, survey uh, was conducted at a time when national other other national polls were showing much less support for a, a second referendum. So um, that certainly conflicted with what else was going on at the time. But actually, also, and I think uh, quite quite uh, relevant and, and fits with our earlier conversation about the uh, sort of methodological differences, is that a Ashcroft poll. Uh, conducted earlier this month that we talked about on a previous pod, asked a very similar question. Um, Once negotiations are complete and the full details of Brexit are known, would you support or oppose holding a referendum on whether to go ahead with Brexit or not? Now, pretty much the same question. It wasn't explicit about whether to accept the deal, uh, but, you know, very similar. But that one got actually more people saying oppose than support. So 42% oppose, 40% support. The BES study, to remind you, was 47% yes, 39% no. Now, I guess it could be that there's something about the um, the wording that is producing that bigger difference, but the wordings are pretty similar. So, again, that's raising the question, is it the case that all these other polls that we're looking at on uh, remain, uh, remain versus leave or second referendum or not, all of them are being conducted in a way that's getting a particular result. And then this, this one rare gold standard survey that's conducted differently is getting a very different result. Well, so I think that if you look interesting at, about how we interpret that. Yeah, because I think if you look at some of the, um, the cross breaks there, if you look at this uh, split by the referendum result in 2016, um, Remainers, 70% want a referendum, 22% don't. That's broadly in line with uh, the trend that I've typically seen, which is about one in five Remainers don't want 
another referendum. That's something I, 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 I physically remember myself saying that, looking at several other polls, including some of the ones we've done with opinion um, on, on this very subject. But there are a bit, there are other differences though with leavers. 28% of leavers want an offer refer referendum and 61% don't. That's a very, very different split to some of the opinion polls, um, of what the uh, more normal opinion polls, traditional opinion polls are showing. And it could very well be that it's about the composition of leave voters um, that are in um, current opinion polls is giving us a misplaced view on how committed they are to Brexit. I'm not saying that's for certain, um, but it is interesting that when you've got this kind of random probability survey where we're where we're going out there and we're deliberately trying to get people that aren't necessarily enthusiastic about taking part in surveys and they're giving a slightly different picture to what online panelists are doing for example that 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 is potentially quite important actually and then the third split, and, and so easy for us to forget because we get this very rarely and we get the other polls all the time and, yeah and, and uh, just because they're all saying the same thing doesn't mean that it's not the case that they're uh, all systematically wrong in the same way and and you know i remember doing a podcast with um with lord Fawkes, where i think it was with rob at the time um and you know he was saying that about in the past these things used to be face to face but the trouble is to do something like this quarterly which is the best you could probably do it would cost a fortune and you know who's going to fund it and it would have to be it's certainly not newspapers funding the british election study you know it's an academic project so I don't know. I'm not sure how we can really square that circle. I don't think we can. But the other split that was uh, I thought um, stood out was that non-voters from 2016, 38% wanted a um, another referendum, 28% uh, didn't. So I guess a quite a large chunk um, not not decided. I'm not sure. But that does that does feed um, what other data says or at least suggests it does, which is that non-voters from 2016 seem to be uh, skew pro-Remain, if you like, now, or, or, or you know, regretting Brexit and that sort of thing. So there's a few things to chew over there that I think are actually quite um, quite significant. And the sampling is actually really, really important, isn't it? Mm. Okay, so the final, the final um, sort of finding, um, and there's lots more to chew over in the data. Actually, I should say that um, that as well. But the final finding I wanted to to, to refer to that um, again, Matt kindly pulled for everybody was uh, about the death penalty, and um, it does speak to again bubbles, if you like, um, sort of liberal bubbles, if or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, there was a, there was a question that said, for some crimes, the death penalty is the most appropriate sentence. Strongly agree 18%, agree 33%, so that's what, 51% agree. Neither agree nor disagree 9%, so I guess undecided 9%. So 60% either agree or undecided. And then you've got 19% disagree, 20% uh, strongly disagree, so 39% um, disagreeing. So 51% agree, 39% disagree, 9% um, neither. Um, and I just thought that was worth dwelling on a little bit. I'm not calling for the death penalty to come back or anything like that, but I think that the 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 way that the general public think about certain issues is not necessarily the same as what the uh, some people in the media think that they might. Now, there's no trend on that data, so I, I have a feeling that may be coming down. Um, I, I certainly would expect that, but the fact that a majority... Um, would support the death penalty being reintroduced um, struck me as quite significant. Having said that, I don't think there's any any suggestion for a second that it is coming back. And if it did, I think there'd have to be some kind of referendum. And I'm not sure that that. Uh, I think public opinion might shift on that quite quite strongly. I don't think anyone wants another referendum. I don't. I don't, no, I don't. I don't think so either. But it will be. Um, 
One thing I will say is it, 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 it will when if Britain leaves the, when Britain leaves the EU, it, it will be interesting to see whether there are people that come out with stuff like that in a genuinely serious way um, on the left or the right, and not the left for the death penalty, but just mm. like for, for policies that ten years, fifteen years ago we thought no way is that ever going to happen. I wonder in this new era of politics that we're in um, whether whether it could in the future, but that's purely speculation, mm. uh, sort of on my part. Yeah. Incidentally, on trends uh, on this question, um, I've I wrote about this a few years ago, and so, and so have a bunch of data that is um, several years out of date, but it's interesting for comparing trends and um, sort of compared with about ten years ago. There seems to be pretty much no movement. So, if you ten years ago, if you asked people um, whether the death penalty should be um, allowed in the case of uh, someone who's committed murder. Uh, for people convicted of murder, you're getting the same kind of numbers, 50-51%. Uh, at that time, if you were more explicit about it being a particularly heinous crime, so multiple murders or child murder or something like that, then you've got more like 61 to 65%. Mm. So this one was worded about for some crimes. So that feels to me like that actually perhaps was something that a decade ago would have been getting more like the high 50s to the 60s. Uh, but obviously that's that's purely speculation. But I think it would certainly fit with what we might expect in terms of the generational trends that that would be beginning to drift downwards. And regardless of the issue, where, of the issue itself and the trend and that sort of thing, it does show you the complexity of public opinion where we can, as a society, be getting significantly more liberal on, on some issues, um, maybe gay marriage, um, maybe racial equality, that sort of thing. Um, vote Brexit and yet, you know, have a majority of support for the death penalty. So there's some com there's some complex um, in inherent contradictions, arguably, in how people, uh, might, individuals might be thinking on different issues that don't fit into normal boxes of how we see voters as liberal, conservative, whatever it might be. You know, so it just shows the complexity of public opinion. Um, but that's all we've got time for for this week's um, politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. Very numbers heavy, very data heavy and, and wonky this week. Hope you uh, enjoyed us trying to wade through the um, British election study data. I think it's something we're going to be looking to try and revisit in the coming weeks with some of the guys that worked on that um, worked on that uh, very, very valuable um, study and see, get their take on some of them. Um, some of what's come out of things. And I'm sure they'll be they'll be releasing further data and uh, analysis papers in, in the future. Um, if you like what you hear from the podcast, um, please do share us on social media. It's one of the primary ways that we find new listeners is through friends of the show, um, um, getting our names out there. Um, and also, if you if you really like what you hear, please give us a nice rating on iTunes or other podcast apps. It um, helps the algorithm gods put, put us up the charts and, uh, again, get, get the show out there. We still find new people... Um, even now, three years later, saying that they, they've listened for the first time and enjoy it, and that's always nice to hear. So anything you can do, uh, dear listener, uh, to help would be fantastic. But for now, thank you very much, Leo, and uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>